This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, April 6th, 2023 edition. And I have today with me, once again, since it is Thursday, Luke Guerrero. Welcome back, Luke. Thanks for having me, Justin. Of course. Now, today we are going to dive into the various dynamics that are impacting the markets today. Obviously, geopolitical concerns are a big factor, much bigger than we've seen in the past. And uh, different market dynamics with higher inflation, higher interest rates, all of these things uh, have large ramifications across across many asset classes. So we're going to discuss all of this and try to uh, unpack as much as we can for you so you can make good sound decisions with your money. Now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and that's our goal. And it's to help uh, give you unbiased or not help to actually give you unbiased answers to your questions. And we're not here to push anything, just trying to give you some perspective, positives and negatives of, of every asset class. There's always risks and rewards for everything that you're looking at. Uh, it's important to be not to be dogmatic and fall in love with any one type of investment and understand the pros and cons of each. And that's what uh, we're here to do. So your participation is vital. It's important. And you, you push the agenda on today's show. We have things that we want to discuss, but ultimately it's really about you. And we're here to shape your thinking, your mindset, so you can become a successful investor. So you don't fall prey to the many pitfalls that the average investor uh, tends to fall into by using emotions over logic. So we're trying to keep you keep your feet on the ground and focus on the facts at hand. So our toll-free line, as always, is 888-99-CHART. You can call that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and leave your message, and we'll answer that on a future show. Or if you're listening now live, 4 to 5 Pacific time, each and every weekday, you can call and talk to us live, okay? So we've got a lot to cover on today's podcast. My main focus point in regard is regards to the story behind this question. Which stocks perform worst in Q1? You can probably guess a little bit, but we're going to look at the data. Look at 844 U.S. stocks. This is covered by Morningstar. And 29 fell more than 20% in the first quarter. We're going to look at some of those underperformers and give you our perspective if maybe that underperformance is going to continue. All right. So we're going to look at that. Also, how ESG should be regulated. I know Luke is a big fan of this one. And then uh, landlords. Landlords are cutting rents. Vacancy rates are rising pretty dramatically. So we're going to check in on the rental markets uh, across the country. And then lastly, the JOLTS data. Job openings that came out earlier this week. So we're going to look at that data data and uh, help you understand where the jobless market might be heading into tomorrow, which is Good Friday. It's It's a market holiday, but there will be a jobs number coming out. We also have some voice bank questions ready to play. One is on Charles Schwab and the other is on retirement funds. So I've got this all planned for this episode of Invest Talk. But of course, your live calls are number one at 888 99 chart. 
Now the market, let's take a look at the market today. It was a decidedly, it was a positive day, but pretty minor, right, Luke? Yeah, pretty minor. I think it's important to note, you know, coming off a little bit of a rally in March, it was pretty flat on the week for the first week of the new quarter. Yeah, a little consolidation, as we call it, in the technical uh, term. And it's not shocking to see a bit of consolidation going into, or a bit of kind of flat market going into the jobs data. Uh, which is uh, certainly going to be vital to future Fed policy. And right now, the, the market's kind of pricing in rate cuts by September. Isn't that right? Yep, by September and potentially. I saw uh, day over day the chance of one more rate cut in May has gone up about 3%. It stands at 53% today. Yeah, so uh, the jobs number will probably feed into how market expectations shift. And whether that is going to beat or uh, or miss, uh, we'll see that tomorrow. Even though the market is closed, and then I think next week is the CPI data. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, I think why you're getting a bit of consolidation, waiting to see where those numbers come in at and how that will affect future policy. All right. Now let's head over to our first listener question now. Hi, this is Steve. I have a question about Huntington Ingalls Industries. It's a military shipbuilding company. I really like that space and I want to invest in it. At the current price, I see it's falling down. Is it a good time to pick that up? Let me know. Thanks. All right. This is Huntington Ingalls Industry. They build and repair U.S. Navy nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, submarines, destroyers. So they are in the aerospace and defense uh, department. And obviously consistent business. This is uh, the U.S. government, the military industrial complex, and, and they uh, tend to do uh, very well. Obviously, this is maybe a play on a war with Taiwan. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, I think like you said, uh, one of the biggest businesses of the U.S. government is war, and certainly this is a time uh, that is contradictory to you know the, the end of the, the 20th century and that there's heightened tensions. Um, so I think this would probably be a good, good type of business uh, to invest in. Yeah, I think you you really have to uh, you really have to believe that we'll go into some hot war with China. I personally don't believe so. I think we are going to uh, we've started to realize that there have been an economic war. Uh, if you watch uh, or if you read the art of war, uh, you you kind of want to hit the enemy where they aren't expecting it and. And that's kind of what they've done uh, over the past uh, 10 years or so. And now we're kind of waking up to that with industrial policy, with the uh, CHIPS Act and the, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and so I think that's where gonna be, it's going to be a tit-for-tat type of thing. Uh, but I could be wrong. If you're in the camp that there will be some sort of hot war over the next maybe five to 10 years uh, in, uh, with, with China, I think this is uh, the one to, to be in because a hot war with China would probably be on sea, correct? Right, Luke? That's true. I will also say, though, a best offense is a good defense, is what they say in sports. And that can certainly be the case for these types of companies as well. You don't necessarily have to get into that open conflict for uh, the defensive uh, positioning to to be strengthened by, by their customers. Well, what about the, what about the expectation of a potential budget crisis over the next five years? You know, our, uh, our debt is pretty large. Do you think uh, military spending will be cut? You know, it's one of those things where it's always on the table, but it doesn't seem like it ever is. Uh, yeah. I saw a recent survey, actually, that said an overwhelming majority of Americans wanted the uh, federal budget to be cut. But when you go line item by line item, they wanted each individual item to be raised. So that was an interesting one. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a conundrum we'll probably have to uh, approach at some point, probably in our lifetimes, Luke. But uh, yeah, it, uh, it doesn't seem to be in the near, near term. Um, now, on the technical side of, of, uh, of Huntington, let me pull that up right. Huntington Ingalls Industries, it, it's, it is in a downtrend. So I would wait on it. Uh, you know, the, the technicals, to me, uh, kind of override what looks to be a decent company at a decent price. Um, but I would pass on until the, the, the fundamental or the technicals improve uh, more. And it's uh, just started its downtrend back in November. And so I would pass on Huntington Ingalls at the moment. But keep on your watch list for improvements in the technicals. Now we're going into a quick break. And you can call anytime with a question when it comes to mind. And leave it on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. Or if you're listening live, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. In today's world, a variety of factors are affecting the stock markets. Serious investors know building a secure financial future requires hard work and determination. That's why now, more than ever, when it comes to the planning, execution, and maintenance of your portfolio, you need InvestTalk. With total downloads surpassing 50 million, each InvestTalk podcast should be one of your key financial planning and educational tools. InvestTalk is a free download. And hosts Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to provide their unbiased guidance and professional analysis developed from real-time data research and years of investing experience. 24-7, rain or shine, during smooth sailing or on rough weather days, the Invest Talk listener line is open and waiting for your questions. You set the agenda. Don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888 99Chart. All right, now we just finished the first quarter and we're going to check in on the worst performing stocks of the first quarter. They're always uh, interesting to see where the, the pain points were in a quarter that was broadly higher. Uh, I think the S&P outperformed smaller caps for the first time in a long time. And I think that mainly is because of the worst performing sector, which were regional bank stocks. And a lot of those regional banks are small cap and small cap on the value side, typically. And so they really took it on the chin. And out of 844 U.S. listed stocks covered by Morningstar, 29 of them fell by more than 20%. Most of those were in the regional bank sector. Uh, do you think that's the the main reason for that outperformance of large cap over small cap in Q1? Absolutely. You know, I think that nobody is going to be surprised by the fact that these regional banks are going to be the worst performers at the end of the quarter uh, because these are the things that are pretty much driving Fed policy. That's how severe the potential crisis was. Yeah. And about 319 stocks declined during the first quarter compared to 608 that fell throughout the first quarter of 2022. So it was a much better quarter than, than last year. That's for sure. Now, the worst stock of the universe was First Republic Bank. It fell 88.5%, finished down 93.6 from its November 2021 high. And the, there were other regional banks that obviously were, were hit hard. Zions Bank Corp down nearly 40%. Comerica down 34%. Key Corp down 27%. And Charles Schwab, that was down 37%. Now, 
kind of in conjunction with that, with that were the REITs, the REITs. And the, the sector as a whole was the second worst sector. And it's uh, very linked to that first worst sector. And that's because these REITs are very reliant on credit from these smaller regional banks. Regional banks, they, they tend to lend a lot in the commercial real estate space. And REITs, which require a distribution of 90% of their rental income to shareholders, means that they don't have a lot of retained capital in order to sure up uh, cash, right? If, you, if you're trying to be safer, you, you hold a bunch of your earnings back instead of paying a big dividend, uh, and, and you hold it as cash, and, and you're, you're safer for the more difficult times. But REITs, they're not allowed to do that. They have to push 90% of that income in, uh, in, into the dividend. And that means they're more dependent on these, letters, these lenders rolling their debt, keeping their operations uh, afloat. And so that's why the, uh, there were major REIT stocks that were down uh, tw- about 25% or more. V- Vernado was uh, a big one, down 25%. SL Green was down 28.4%. And mainly it's because they are focused on renting out office space. And it wasn't just the office space uh, market. Unit Unity Group, UNIT, that's a specialty REIT that focuses on cell towers and fiber optic networks. So you would think that's ultra safe, right? Because everyone's using their cell phone. But that was a hit because of high leverage and poor credit rating. Um, so do you think, which one of these trends do you think will continue, Luke, into the second quarter? Yeah, I think uh, some of the concerns probably surrounding the ability for uh, and easy access to some of the investments that these banks made to um, deal with the fact that they had record record amounts of inflowing capital is probably going to be certainly top of mind for the Fed going forward in, in terms of their policy. Yeah, they're going to watch what's happening with uh, with the regional banks and whether they can they can stay afloat because higher interest rates uh, certainly, uh, as, as you've seen, hit their balance sheet pretty hard and, and cause these uh, these bank runs. So uh, that's something to watch. And then uh, how much will it really impact the REIT, REIT sector and will there be bankruptcies? And I do think there will be uh, in the office space. So that's something to watch for the balance of the year. Now, we're going to take a break, but we are here ready and inviting your questions on Talk at 888-99-CHART. I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99 chart. Hello, Steve, Justin. This is David from Portland. Love the show. I was interested in your take on Charles Schwab. It seems like a really good deal here. I feel like it's being thrown down in the mud with the banks and the banking debacle. And they're not really a bank. Anyway, I thought it was a good deal, so I'd like your take. And my one concern is that it's a publicly traded company, unlike Fidelity, which is private, or Vanguard, which is a mutually owned company. So if I was an investor at Schwab, I might be worried about the share price. I don't have to worry about that at Fidelity or Vanguard. So if you could talk a little bit about that, it'd be great too. Thanks, guys. I'll be listening on the podcast. Well, I'll start with that last part because that's not true at all. Um, The share price of Schwab matters not to the people who have their money at Schwab. When you have your money at Schwab, your money is isolated in a particular account. Even if Schwab went bankrupt, your money is safe 
not only is it specifically insured, but it's siloed. It's in your bank account. It's not Schwab's money. You don't have uh, an obligation. Um, unlike, was it was it FTX or was it Coinbase where uh, if they go bankrupt, your uh, they might confiscate your. Coinbase put that in their disclosures, but I'm yeah. pretty sure that's how every crypto exchange operates. Yeah, exactly. So this isn't crypto. <laughs> this is these these brokerage firms have been around a long time. So uh, it's not commingled assets with Schwab's assets. So it's not like you have to worry about it uh, whether Schwab's publicly traded or Fidelity isn't uh, is all all completely irrelevant. But uh, what I think what you're asking most of all is is Schwab a good investment? Right? It has fallen from a high. Earlier this year, around $87 per share. Now we're at $50 per share. Based on forward-looking earnings, it looks pretty treat, cheap. Supposed to earn somewhere in the $5 neighborhood next year, and it's trading at about 50 bucks. So you're talking about a 10 times forward-looking earnings. And uh, what's interesting is uh, Luke and some of the guys, we were bouncing uh, around this in the office today about the risks uh, involved of buying Schwab. Uh, and Luke, why don't you talk a little about that? What what did we uh, discuss uh, in office on, on how to uh, address the potential risk that Schwab has? Yeah, certainly. I think you know what we were talking about is is especially with a lot of financial institutions, you have regulatory risk and legislative risk, and that every two to five years you have an issue arise to the general public, and there's a lot of push in Congress and in Washington to legislate and regulate but it never really comes to fruition. So in this case, we're talking about the pay-for-order flow and how that might change the essential non-commission structure of companies like Schwab. But really, the two benefits that you can think of with a company like Schwab is the two shuns, if you will, the consolidation of the industry and the integration, vertical integration, of what their, what their most recent merger is doing for them. Yeah, and that, those synerg that synergy with uh, TD Meritrade, which uh, that merger we know because our clients, TD clients, are going to be Schwab clients here uh, in September. So that's when that, that merger is going to happen. TD moniker is going to go away, and they'll just be Schwab accounts. So uh, I think that's overall a, a net positive uh, for Schwab. But there are some, like you said, regulatory risks when it comes to payment for order flow. How is that going to be regulated? Uh, it sounds like they're going to they're going to change it to some degree, but probably in a way that uh, still keeps it uh, relatively lucrative compared to uh, where it is uh, today and, and not materially uh, you know, impact their, their earnings uh, too much. Uh, but I, I think you, 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 there is a bank there, though. Um, so that is something to pay attention to. Uh, you're right. It is a brokerage firm that they have a bank within it um, where they own uh, – different types of assets. But the, the thing is, there's not really uh, likely that, that run on the bank that you're going to get uh, elsewhere. They have a pretty sticky deposit base uh, Those with, with people that have money uh, at Schwab. So uh, we think, you know, we kind of came out on the side of the, it's a pretty good risk versus reward at this point. Uh, it's just a question of, do we want to take that risk with client money? You know, I'm not sure we're, we're quite there yet. Um, but it, it is interesting down here. Right, Luke? Absolutely. Yeah. So that was Charles Schwab, S-C-H-W. Now let's head over to Kevin in the Bay Area looking at ENPH Enphase. Yeah, hi. Thank you guys for, for talking with us. Uh, I'm mainly interested in starting a position in this company. You know, it's kind of one of those companies that has you know, pretty high valuations in terms of their PE and enterprise value to EBITDA. But, but in general, I think it's a good company. In terms of you know they're doing everything right and keeping debt and their their debt levels and growing their earnings and revenue. Uh, mainly just curious on what you uh, both think of 
of M-phase energy. All right, this is N-phase energy, and they are a, uh, a company that that delivers smart and easy solutions to manage solar generation storage and communications on one single platform. This is mainly for rooftop solar uh, systems. And they've obviously been growing uh, pretty steadily over the years. They were losing money back in 2017. Now they're supposed to make $4 per share roughly this year, $6.29 next year. And analysts are upgrading those earnings expectations. But the chart is now in a downtrend, so that worries me a bit. Uh, do you think it's too expensive, Luke? I think it might be too expensive. Its price to book is 31 Its price to sales is 11 That still seems a little high. Just because something is a, is a good company to, to invest in doesn't mean it may necessarily be a good time to open a position in that company. Yeah, I mean, just because uh, the the like you said, the profitability metrics are solid, but the multiples are just simply too high. So uh, I would pass on it for now, especially now that it's in a downtrend. Okay, so uh, keep on your watch list and wait for it to get to more reasonable multiples. I and mean, eleven times sales is almost rarely it's rare that you make money buying things at eleven times sales. All right, we're going to head into a quick break. And after the break, we're going to go talk to Alan in Dallas. But for the rest of you, you can give us a call at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members? or friends from a different culture. I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally. First with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so... Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. 
In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com, HackerOne.com. Everybody wants a secure financial future. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to provide their unbiased answers. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to Alan. He is in Dallas. He wants to talk about unit investment trusts. Right. I remember one time I was listening to you and I wasn't listening intently. And you said that there's a certain investment where it's just a hassle. It's not even worth uh, investing because there are different IRS forms and whatnot. Um, is a unit investment trust that? No. A unit investment trust is very similar to a mutual fund or a closed-end fund, but there is a particular end date so it's uh, and, and the, the portfolio is fixed. So you buy into this, you know exactly what it's going to hold today and into the future. Whereas uh, a mutual fund, for example, there is a manager there and they could change that, that portfolio. Uh, there could be style drift, uh, for example. They could be forced to sell if uh, other investors redeem, right? And then they uh, are they, they take some some gains on some of their positions and kind of uh, rebalance the portfolio. Uh, and so those things happen within a mutual fund, whereas this is a static allocation. You know exactly what you're getting, and many of them end at a certain date. So uh, I think these are pretty straightforward, Luke. I think almost too straightforward, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that it's it's certainly a unique thing that a lot of investors don't hear about often, but the the level of clarity you get with the investment, like you said, you know what you're holding and it really doesn't change because in fact, there's no board of directors or corporate officers or really investment advisor that changes anything during the entire life of the trust. Yeah, and even in like the S&P 500, there's the S&P, they change their index and that can change, you know, that's going to change over time. And thus, if you own an SPY or VOO, uh, that portfolio is going to change. Whereas a unit investment trust, it's not going to change. That's exactly what you're going to get. And you don't have to guess. I guess that's the upside. Uh, I don't know if I think it's really worth it. But no, these aren't ones uh, that have some sort of special tax treatment or anything like that. Yeah, and think about the downside potentially too is that it doesn't change. You don't have that flexibility. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for the call, Alan. Now let's touch a bit on ESG ratings. And you know, there's a lot of assets now. Uh, there's projected to be $50 billion in ESG funds by 2025. And there are a lot of firms that are now tasked to give ESG ratings to particular securities. And that wields a lot of influence, you know, it basically saying that this, these companies can or can't be included in ESG funds, which are getting more and more capital flows. 
And those companies that are doing these ratings, they're, they're, they're getting pretty high profit margins for it. So the question I think a, a lot of people's mind is, you know, is this transparent enough? And are they doing this more to make money? Is it really being effective, Luke? Yeah, no, that's, that's really just an excellent point to make because one of the biggest concerns within this space is that there's no easily understood way to measure this. And regardless of your feelings towards the initiatives that a green company, for example, would take, there are risks associated with, with companies that are related to environmental issues, right? If the world is consistently changing more towards becoming uh, you know, ingrained in using renewable energies and Exxon is not taking that risk seriously, that's something an investor should be concerned about. Well, it, should they be concerned because... It's, it's higher risk. Because it's higher risk for what's generating the company's profits. Well, that's assuming that there is going to be that green transition. And oh, no, absolutely. And that absolutely. Exxon's going to be uh, held back. Absolutely. Right? So I think there's a lot of assumptions in that ESG that if certain companies are not living up to these particular, uh, these particular, uh, criteria, this particular criteria, that they are in higher risk of some sort of financial uh, Ruin, I guess you could say, and I, I don't know if that's really true. You know, but but most people believe that ESG ratings are a measure of corporate goodness, and I think both have the argument that they don't do a very good job of each. What do you think? Yeah, that's my primary issue because, like I said, I don't look at it as an environmental issue and where you stand on that politically, but more is your company taking on and looking at all the risks that face their business. But if you don't have a succinct way to measure that and it's overly expensive, then the entire ESG rating system is useless. Yeah, and yeah, like you said, if it's inconsistent, it's subjective, uh, it's not regulated – and it has a lot of conflicts of interest. So it kind of reminds me a lot of the rating agency conflicts of interest back in whatever, 05, 06, right? Uh, hey, we're going to use you to rate our bonds, but you, you know, hint, wink, hint, hint, wink, wink, but you got to give our bonds a certain rating and we'll go to you, Moody's or you, S&P. And guess what? Moody's and S&P are also involved with ESG ratings along with companies uh, like uh, sustain, sustainalytics, sustainalytics, and so I think that the question is: Are the same conflicts of interest apparent, and are they really are they are they doing a good job at reflecting the true risk, whether that is on impact or in the financial sense? Yeah, and just to go along with that lack of consistency, you know, MSCI has a rating system that I'm familiar with, mm -hmm. and S&P has their own rating system, and the level of overlap between those two, the correlation between those two ratings is below 50%. Mm -hmm. So if we're all looking at the same things, how mm -hmm. can that possibly be? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's going to have some, should have some high correlation. Otherwise, they're both, they're all using uh, pretty different qualifications for ESG, and that just hits back to Lack of transparency. What is MSCI's qualifications versus S&P's versus Sustainalytics? And which one's better and why? I think there should be a conversation about this, uh, I think, politically, right? Uh, because that's really what this comes down to is what are the politics behind these three, uh, these three measures? And what, what, really mean, what, what does ESG really mean? I don't think anybody knows, 
quite yet. No, no one knows. And, and it's like you said before, 50 billion by 2025, which means now that the money's moving there, you really need to get it right. Yeah, exactly. Now let's pivot back to another voice bank question that came in earlier on 888 chart. Hello there, Dylan here from Houston, Texas. I've been listening a little over a year and love the show. I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. I am currently matching my employer's contribution of 3% through a simple IRA. I am then maxing out a personal Roth IRA through Fidelity. Through this, I'm buying the Vanguard S&P 500, ticker VOO, and Vanguard's value ETF, ticker VTV, and switching those up every other month. Is this good enough, or should I be contributing more through another account? Secondly, I'm getting married in December of this year. Any recommendations on combining our retirement funds or keeping them separate? Thanks in advance. Bye. Well, you can't combine retirement funds. Your 401k is your 401k. Your wife's is your wife's. Same with your IRA, your Roth IRA. You cannot combine retirement accounts with somebody else. So that's, that's an easy answer there. Now, what your overall allocation should be is another story. Um, and how much you should save, that's more of a question of your, you know, your, your total amount saved right now, your age, your risk tolerance level, your, your broad uh, long-term goals, when you want to retire, et cetera. That's more of a retirement planning question. But when it comes to allocation, Luke, do you think just owning VTV and VOO is enough for somebody who's invested long-term? You know, I think uh, investing in value securities, as we uh, recently talked about in a webinar, mm -hmm. is something that has had long-term empirical benefits. I think that is fantastic. I think getting some exposure to an S&P 500 fund, is that what it was, the Vanguard? Yep, VOO, yep. Yeah, an S&P 500 fund, that's fantastic as well. But it really depends on your time horizon. If mm -hmm. you are younger, you can take more risks. If you're older, you probably need that capital sooner. Um, so a lot, a lot of factors go into how you should allocate. The prosperous future you envision for yourself and your family will not happen without strategic planning and definitive action. Let's go to Brian in San Mateo looking at Roku. And I wanted your take on the, uh, the technical picture. For the unprepared investor, market volatility around the world demonstrates risk. But opportunities wait for no one. And now may be the best time in years to invest wisely, to invest strategically what i would do is keep saving and look for other opportunities but how can you decide what sectors to avoid which stocks to buy and what might be the best price point i'm new to investing and my friend wesley recommended your podcast a year ago and how should you deal with your risk tolerance invest talk to prevail Serious investors need a balanced combination of realistic market education and unbiased guidance. KPP Financial Principals Steve Peasley and Justin Klein host a unique weekday finance and investment program and podcast, Invest Talk. Hello, Justin and Steve. This is Joel calling in from Maine. I love the show. I'll be listening for your answer. Is your asset portfolio properly balanced? How can you better manage your 401k? How will economic events affect the real estate market? So many questions. The straightforward answers can help you focus on your drive for success. You can learn more anytime at investtalk.com. The next decisive step on your path to financial freedom begins with a Spotify search for Investtalk. 
Listen live or download the free podcast. And I've got a question about warrant shares. I think that's the right term. Got a question for Steve or Justin? 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve and Justin. It's Art from Tucson. Hey, I was wondering what you thought about the Dogs of the Dow investment strategy for 2023. Just to give you the freedom to discuss some of the stocks, three of the Dogs of the Dow is usually the top 10 that are down the most in the Dow Industrial Average, as I understand it. I was looking at 3M, MMM, Intel, INTC, and uh, Walgreens, WBA. Uh, those are three that are really down significantly. Just wondered what you thought about that theory. It's supposed to give uh, superior gains over um, a lot of years, at least. And I'll listen to your answer on the podcast. Thanks for all you do. Well, the dogs of the Dow aren't the 10 that are down the most. It's the 10 highest yielding, dividend yielding stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average at the beginning of each year. And for this year, 2023, it'd be Verizon. About 6.6% yield. Dow Chemical 5.5, Intel 5.5, Walgreens Boots 5.14, 3M right around 5%, IBM at 4.68, Amgen three and a quarter, Cisco 3.2, Chevron 3.16, and JP Morgan right around 3%. So those are the dogs of the Dow for this year. Now, is it better than just owning the Dow outright? Yes, numbers play out. However, this is just simply a value strategy. It's really what it is. You're using one simple metric, a decent metric, but only one metric. And some of these companies I would invest in, some of them not so much. And, you know, because it doesn't take into account leverage, quality of their earnings, growth, things like that, that I think are important. And the numbers say they're important. So, is this better than just buying the Dow? Yes. 8899 chart, 8892-4278. We have about, uh, let's see, nine minutes left in the show. So if you're going to call, you're going to do that right now. Now let's touch a bit on the job openings, uh, the JOLTS data that just came in a couple of days ago. And for the first time in, over, in a couple of years, the total number of jobs opened was at 9.9 .9 million. It fell below the 10 million mark. In February, that's down from the 10.6 million mark in January. That was also down downwardly revised, but still well above the 7 million that was pre-pandemic February of 2020. Now, my question here, and I've, I've said, said this to Luke a couple times, is how accurate is this data in the world of work from home? Because the way that they calculate this, they look at different regions, and if I'm posting a remote job. I might post it here, here in Los Angeles. I might post it in Seattle. I might post it in Orlando. And maybe that's counted three times. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very valid point. It it's also seems interesting to me because I feel as though every other month they're revising the way they're measuring something. For the, for the first uh, 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 
was the name the, of the data that came in today with the uh, uh, jobless claims. Sorry jobless about claims, that. For initial jobless claims, they had to revise the entirety of March up 50,000 a week because they're changing how they look at seasonally adjusted workers. Um, yeah. So it's the world is changing and it's becoming inherently more complicated. Yeah, that's definitely true, which is odd because you would think it would be easier with all the data that pe- that we're getting, uh, that, that uh, companies can get. The government seems to have trouble collecting the right data. Anyway, we're heading into our final break, so give us a call now at 888-99-CHART. The stock market is constantly changing, and now with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on Invest Talk. 888 99Chart. Hey, Steve and Justin. I've owned Merck and AbbVie stocks for a couple of years now, and value's increased, and they have a good dividend yield. I was seeing your thoughts on it, if, if it's something I should keep, or since the value's gone up so much, maybe I should uh, sell now and, and reinvest uh, in a future date. Let me know your thoughts. Bye. All right, this is AbbVie, A-B-B-V, and it's a very large pharma company, $286 billion market cap. And they mainly have exposure to immunology and oncology. It's from its top drug is Humira. It's close to half the company's current profits. So obviously there's a big question about the patent cliff on Humira. So I definitely look into that. Yeah, it looks like there is coming up on some uh, patent issues uh, with that one. So that's a, that's a pretty big risk, right, Luke? Yeah, it's definitely a big risk from a, from a valuation perspective. You know, AbbVie is currently sitting at a whopping 18 price to book. 16, sorry, 16.52 price to book. It's pretty expensive. Yeah, it's pretty expensive. Enterprise value to EBITDA is 14 times. Price sales ratio is around five. And like I said, there's worries of Humira coming off a patent. And there are biosimilar pressures uh, in international markets that are uh, likely to lead to declining sales. And right now, their sales are only 2% growth uh, from here. So I think that's the, the biggest worry for AbbVie. Now, they're taking that cash and they're making smart acquisitions, like they bought Allergan a few years back. And uh, that business is, uh, is very strong. So I think that's a well-run company. The issue, I think, is just that, that Humira and how much will there be loss of sales over the next uh, five year, five to ten years or so, and then on top of that, you know, with uh, the regulation that's coming down the pipe from Congress on the uh, Medicare prescription drug prices, I think that's uh, going to hold uh, the company like this back potentially. And so, I would be patient on AbbVie. I, I probably be cutting and, and maybe eliminating this name. Yeah, in these certain in these scenarios and situations, I like to think to myself not just how would that company perform, but how's it going to perform relative to other companies? We call that opportunity cost. Yep. So, is it going to continue to perform better than other companies? Maybe, maybe not. I agree with Justin. Yeah, and there will be, you know, they're doing uh, some R and D on uh, drugs that could usurp uh, Humira in their uh, reliance. Uh, when it comes to profitability, but a lot of that's what ifs. Um, so nothing has hit market that's going to be uh, so far nearly as big as Humira. Uh, but they're certainly going to try, and, and once again, it's well run. So I think they're they're going to do as best a job as they can. But it's really hard to replace forty percent of your sales. Um, so I would, yeah, I would, I would eliminate. I think there's better opportunity costs. Just drug companies in general. 
I don't know about you, Luke. I just don't see it as a great place to be invested right now. Yeah, I agree too. Now let's squeeze in another listener question from 888-99-CHART. Yeah, hi, Steve. Uh, this is Nick Cotry in uh, Hayward. Uh, I just want to ask you if uh, NVIDIA would be a good buy here. NVDA, I would appreciate your uh, answer. And I thank you very much. And it's a great show. I enjoy your show a lot. And uh, thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, now NVIDIA, it's been on a tear as of late, uh, bottom in October on 110. Now it's at 270, so Oof. it's uh, up about 150% since its lows, but it's still well off its highs from a couple of years ago when it hit a high of $344 per share. What do you think of the valuation at this point after this rally, Luke? Well, Justin, what would you say a reasonable price to sales would be for a company? Um, four to six? Yeah, this one's got a 24.61. Yeah. That's uh, that's pretty egregious. Enterprise value to EBITDA is 110. Uh, I think this is a stone cold short. There's obviously a lot of hype around AI, and uh, Nvidia's chips are certainly important uh, in, in that. But you know, are you really going to pay these multiples for a company whose earnings are down 33% year over year, sales down 21% year over year? So as hyped up as you want to be about the technology, their business it's not doing very well right now. So uh, I think this is uh, a pretty good short candidate, if you ask me. All right. I think that about does it for today's show. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And it's official. We have now surpassed the 51 million download mark since it all began Back in 2008, imagine that we've been we've been we've been podcasting in 2008. Best talk has been around since the 90s. Pretty crazy, right? Now, independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program. It's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president, and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.